Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Uh, Matt, how are you doing this beautiful Friday morning? Oh, not so bad. How are you? Doing well, actually. I got back from Denver yesterday, and uh, the weather there, it's always nice, especially this time of year, because on Sunday, they had, uh, talking to the, one of the cu- my customers, said they, it was on Sunday, they had like a bunch of snow, and it was kind of miserable, and uh, you know, everyone's sort of ready for spring, and and then yesterday and Wednesday, it was like, you know, low 60s, sun shining, so good old Denver, you know, and it's dry, so of course it feels good, um, but uh, either way, it was nice, but I'm happy to be home, and the nice humid climate here, and uh, yeah, ready to get after it, so uh, Matt, actually, you had a request. Why don't you go ahead and uh, you know describe what we're going to talk about today and where that came from? So we we had a request to talk about organophilic clays, and in particular, when and how we use them. Kind of. Uh, so I, I thought it would be good to go through some of the history and the science. As you know, I I guess that's the stuff that interests me. Hopefully, it's not just me. <laughs> right. But um, you know, then then we'll get down to okay, understanding you know how these work and what they're there for. Um, what do they do for us as far as how, how we use them in the field? Cool. Okay. Well, uh, well, look, as the listeners just heard, uh, this came from a request. And so as always, we really appreciate the feedback, any questions, um, any suggestions, we're always open to them. Uh, if you'd like to continue to support the show, please subscribe and do us a huge favor and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Uh, and if you leave a review, let us know. And if you're in the Houston area, I'd love to you know, take you out for coffee and just chat drilling fluids if you're ever open to it. So uh, that's my promise to the listeners. Uh, so let's go ahead, Matt. Organophilic clays. What are organophilic clays? So the name is part of the tell in as much as they like organic materials. Okay. Uh, we use them predominantly as viscosifiers for oil-based mud. Okay. Um, and uh, they, they do a little bit more than just viscosify, but um, organophilic clays are actually used in a lot of things. So think of like greases, lubricants, epoxies, um, paints, varnish, things that need a little bit of, of beef because they may have particulates in them and, and some viscosity would actually thicken them, help them suspend, that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, basically in essence, you think of your, your regular clay like a, a bentonite. Mm-hmm. Um, and you change out the the cation with so, something that uh, you know, particularly an, an amine, usually replaces that exchangeable cation so that it will readily disperse and yield in oil gotcha. when it wants to, you know, disperse in water traditionally. Right, right. Okay. So for uh, for me, my curiosity lies is is an organophilic clay. That's a that's something that's processed, right? Like whereas like barite and you know our regular bentonite clay that's something that's mined is that also mined or is that is there a process to actually create that clay yes uh there are and and you hear when when you get into these conversations you'll talk about the processes so we're converting so we mine the bentonite mm-hmm. and then we're going to convert it into something that's organophilic cool. um and it could be there's a number of different clays that that this is in our industry so bentonite is probably the most common um, then you get into like hectorite for higher temperatures, uh, adipolgite and sepiolite. We'll, we'll talk about kind of where those land. 
Um, but uh, in essence, there there's kind of two different processes that are used uh, to apply this aiming. Okay. And the first one I'll go over is probably, well, it's definitely the most expensive. It's called a wet process. So the great thing about wet process or wet process clays is, is that they're actually, it, part of the process is to purify them and, um, uh, and you get more amine application, more consistent application of the amine. And because of that, you tend to get more viscosity. Okay. Um, the, the trade-off is definitely cost. So what happens is they make a slurry of water and clay. So guess what? Hydrated bentonite, you know, hydrated gel, mm-hmm. um, and then heat it up. And uh, in, in essence, what you can do is, is when you heat it up, you can uh, then centrifuge it and remove things like quartz and feldspar, some other what you'd call impurities, not the, the pure uh, smectite or sodium montmorillonite. Yep. Um, so we take out that stuff that doesn't actually provide viscosity, um, uh, filter it, wash it in that solution. I'm also adding this, this amine, but because all the clay particles are very evenly dispersed already, um, I get a nice, even treatment, and then I've got to dry it again and grind it, and that's basically what ends up in your, in your sack. Gotcha. Um, dry process, I think, came on a little bit later, and, and the, the trick was that basically that, that amine would have to be molten or, or you know, heated up, um, and then you, in essence, grind it in with the clay. So I'm not taking mm. out the impurities. I'm just working the amine into the surface as much as I can. And it's not going to be as even, but it's a heck of a lot cheaper to do. Okay. So, so where did the demand come from that just due to the environment that we're in? Or maybe was there a, there a point in, in our industry where costs were, you know, real strict? And so fo- folks sort of came up with a way to get, you know, similar results, but found a way to manufacture it maybe a little bit more cost effectively or? So dry process is definitely driven by cost. I think I think there was also originally because a lot of this stuff was taken from other industries that needed that purity and wanted to minimize how much material they had to add. Right. That more expensive process is how sort of things develop. Gotcha. Um, I, I will say that uh, that actually preceding this, um, what you would do is is um, instead of uh, being able to uh, just disperse this stuff, you would you would actually have to use what's called a polar activator. So you'd use something like xylene or acetone to try and get the clay to yield. Mm. Um, and guess what? Those have really low flash points and people don't want totes of xylene on the rig. Right. Um, all that being said, um, all that being said, you know, wet process, the knock on it is environmentally, it uses lots of water. It's expensive. Okay. But because I get such even treatments, such high treatment, that amine, it's very good for like, low aromatic, you know, low tox mineral oils, synthetics, Mm. um, it will yield quicker and you'll get more yield. Um, and by yield, I mean viscosity, uh, with the dry process, normally, you you know, I think some of the mud engineers, I'm sure you've experienced this. You had some clay and it takes a little, it's got to get through the bit. It takes a little while to get that yield. Um, and so dry process actually works fine in, in more aromatic, like the diesel muds we use. It, It works great. Okay. Um, and like I said, it's it's cheaper. And and one of the drivers, there's all different flavors of this stuff, right? So, yeah. um, you know, one thing that we, we at AES we we do make our own organo clay, or or at least one of them. Um, I'll correct that. Several, as I understand it. Um, but but part of it, one of the tricks that we've really found is to get a really good yielding dry process clay. 
so we've we're able to keep costs down with the uh with um without using wet process but getting more yield out of the dry process mm-hmm. um shout out to r&d department yeah go get them guys uh so so that you know typically results in lower product consumption perfect um and so predominantly what that we offer you know a few different clays that that i'll get into but i think we've sort of knocked out you know when and why i think wet process even i'll tell you like when i run synthetics we would always use a a primary as a a wet process clay Hmm. and we'd always use it with a dry process as well just even there to control costs right so you might have a ratio where some of it will give me an initial bump and then over time i can use that dry process and it'll, it'll kick in um but cost is a huge factor with organoclays. Right. And then a lot of times, too, you'll use a combination in mud systems. You won't necessarily always just use one versus the other. Typically, it's ran in a ratio. Is that right? That's true. And, and uh, you know, it kind of ties into, you know, our product line where we're not using a wet process and a dry process. Um, but we basically have two clay, two clay families that we like, and it's, it's basically the way they're, um, they're structured. So we have one that, um, we use for sag mitigation and kind of anti-settling. And then we have the, uh, the other one, which is used for uh, basically getting that full rheological profile, aids in filtration control, stabilizes the emulsion, kind of, you know, does, does the whole, whole deal. Right. Um, so, for example, those, those more needle-like clays are, are what we use in, in our, I'll use product names for this just so that our listeners can understand. So, this LS AES Vis LS low sag. Um, so what it is is those more needle needle shaped clays um, treated to be organophilic, but it's a sag mitigation technique. Uh, because if you think about a bunch of needles piled up on a, a haystack, when I stop pumping, yeah, it's basically giving you a gel structure. Uh, so those those products can be quite helpful in high risk sag areas or just in general for for bayrite suspension. Interesting. Um, so, it's, you know, and not to cut you off, it's funny because even as a mud engineer, I mean, we had uh, back in the day FM Vis LS back when the field includes management days. And ever since the LS part came out, I always thought it was uh, Vis low shear. So you mm. actually taught me something new today. Well, I may be wrong, actually, because it's providing low shear rate viscosity. So right. okay. I was, was going to so, tie into that, but it, both obviously are, are tied together. Yeah. Um, so low shear, low sag, that, that probably actually is what it is. Um, and I'm the marketing guy. so. <laughs> No, uh, <laughs> hey, don't get, I've been known to be wrong before, so don't, uh, don't quote me on that one. But either way, and so for the LS2, I know a lot of times, you know, mud engineers were drilling horizontals, any deviated well bore, it's important to increase your low-end rheology. So a lot of times, uh, that product, a low sag or a low shear uh, clay will help increase that. But you can't, the, the big thing is, and, uh, and I've had a lot of folks do this, is their yield point will be good, their high-end rheology, you know, their 600, 300, their yield point, everything looks good. But then all of a sudden they need to increase their low end, so they'll dump a bunch of LS in there, um, and and they won't they won't realize the yield until you have to add some some other clay to it as well. So can you explain kind of the the why they work synergistically? Sure, um, you know structurally. So so um, I'll tie in. So so Vis three being think about the, you've got your rod shaped clay needle and haystack kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, then you've got a. Uh, a, a clay like a it, that's more a smectitic or a layered clay, so it, it fans out, right? Yeah. So it's it's going to have a different type of of structure, and in light of that, when you have needles basically entangling with fans, that kind of thing, um, 
you get that broad profile, um, but they actually can can work together because basically the more of these networks I can build, um, the better structure I get. Yeah. And the other the other part of it is um, that fan shape is also what's going to be important to make sure that you actually get your filtration control. It'll mm-hmm. tighten your emulsion. Right. Um, so, um, and ultimately, those things, uh, you know, they're both contributing to viscosity. We typically, I would say, with between Vis3 and VisLS, um, you know, you're, you're running like a 3 to 1 to a 1 to 1 ratio. Okay. And the driver is going to be what mud weight you're using, mm-hmm. um, your risk of sag, um, so some of those concerns. Do I need, you know, to raise my gels? Do I need a better gel structure? Um, so, for example, my LS additions might increase relative to my Vis3 additions if I run, for example, a viscometer sag shoe test and I see, wow, you know, this stuff seems to be have a higher sag index than than I saw before. Mm. Or perhaps you're just seeing, you know, light mud coming back. Those those indices that may not actually be that sag is happening, but an indicator where you're like, you know what, that made me a little uncomfortable. Let's let's beef up the low ends. Right. Okay. Um, and then across the the profile, you're you're always going to want some traditional, uh, uh, like this three as as because it does so much for you. Okay. When when adding organophilic clay, uh, does it increase? Because obviously you have your oil phase and your water phase. Is it increasing the water phase, the oil phase, a little bit of both, or is that does that make sense? Yes. Uh, in fact, I'm glad you asked because I, I was it, in the background. I was like. I, I probably need to do a little homework and, and explain how this works. Sure. Um, so when you think about uh, going back to our, our polar activator in a hundred percent oil system, I can still get some viscosity, but I don't get much. If you've ever tried to just add clay to base oil, yeah. you don't really see much. You get these polar activators, your acetones, your uh, what have you, xylene does it too. Um, basically what happens is it creates a hydrogen bond that, that kind of bridges between the clay platelets, and that's how I get my viscosity. Right. Um, so you can do it in 100% oil, but you more or less kind of have to, have to cross-link these, these clay platelets, and you need that activator to do it. Gotcha. What's interesting with something where you have a brine phase is the clay sort of finds itself, um, as, it, as it swells, it's, it's basically yielding and, and absorbing onto the uh, interface of the oil-water there. Okay. Uh, or the oil-water interface in, in the emulsion. Um, and so kind of a little bit of both. Uh, so it's, it's interacting with a lot of things there and it's, it's fairly complex, but I was looking at, there's a couple of old school papers that have, you know, some really horrible black and white SEM images of, you know, these things, these things happening. And it's kind of interesting to see. Okay. Um, I guess that would explain too, why when you have a lower oil water ratio, you don't nearly need as nearly as much clay in order to actually see higher you know, funnel viscosities or yield points, um, maybe not so much for low end, but I would imagine that's, that explains as to why. Cause I know a lot of times, you know, the old cowboy method of pumping a high vis sweep instead of adding a bunch of clay, you just dump a bunch of water in your slugging pit and then throw oil based mud on top and it fluffs mm-hmm. it up. Nice. Um, is that sort of what's happening there? Is it the clays or is it the water in the oil kind of making it thick? So in that situation, it's probably the water that's taking over. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I would say that uh, the the other thing is, yes, probably a little more oil or a little more water would make a difference, but it's always, you got to balance that out with that extra water maybe doing something else, yeah. right? So um, both. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, so so that would be my ambiguous, unclear, vague answer to that. But sure. um, yeah, and that's again, that's not something you typically want to want to do. That that's but it's you know, again, it's something we all have these uh, you know, roughneck ways of doing things and oftentimes you see that. And so uh, don't think that by adding more water, your clays are going to magically work better because that's not, I don't believe that's what's happening. <laughs> no, I mean, the water present is important. Don't get me wrong. And if you have more of it, it probably will help your clay yield. Okay. I believe that even if you had like an 80-20 versus a 60-40, ultimately that clay would find that interface because there's just, uh, I mean, you're not adding that much clay relative to your overall volume of mud. Right. Um, that I suspect it would find it eventually. It just may yield faster in, in like a 60-40. Um, gotcha. Um, and, you know, I can't really think of any other questions I have. It's, you know, it's, it's obviously important. Um, you know, there's, everyone has their own version of organophilic clays. Um, Concentration-wise, they're around usually pretty low. You don't need a lot in there. Is that correct? I mean, every, like I said, everyone has kind of their own you know, rule of thumb treatments, but anywhere from a pound to, you know, four or five, is that pretty, pretty accurate or? I mean, it depends on if you're maintaining, if you're, if you're starting with fresh mud, um, you know, I think we've talked about seed mud in the past, right? Like mm-hmm. why it's so important, because if you start with a fresh mix and you demand certain properties, these things take time to yield. And if you tried to have that at the rig site and then you put it through a bit, a couple of times, all of a sudden your properties will be way higher than you expected. Right. Um, and so uh, some of this is how long it takes for these these products to yield. Um, I think the big trouble that mud engineers get into is when they see a drop in something and they add a bunch and don't give it a few circulations to see what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, if a, a lower mud weight, you're probably going to need more. Um, so, you know, we talk about really low mud weight. Sometimes you'd be five, six pounds per barrel of clay and it depends on the quality of clay is it dry process wet process right um and then kind of carrying that ratio for for sag and settling mitigation you know to have the the vis ls in there gotcha so the the, the products we're speaking of coming you know a 50 pound sack uh which is a dry material is there such thing as liquid organophilic clays uh i don't think so just because even like when you think of the wet process kind of stuff where you're like oh well, you could cut out a step um the relative concentration of clay in that solution is is pretty low okay so i don't i don't know if if you get any bang for your buck on that you know and, and liquid sure viscosifiers thing. you know it's worth pointing out the a lot of the liquid viscosifiers actually work complementary with these clays even yep um because they act on solids and and kind of create that network in and of themselves so um you know i i think that um that's a whole other thing that, I mean, we've talked about clay-free systems. We've done some, uh, some other conversations. Yep. But um, if you're running, for example, EnterReach, which has, you know, a polymeric viscosifier and, and so a low-end modifier, um, you may find yourself in a slightly different position because now you're, bu- you're banking on the relationship between your VIS-3, your VIS-LS, and your low-end, you know, your liquid additive. Um, but once again, if as long as you don't overreact, as long as you make sure you stay within the guidelines of your concentration additions, you should be okay. Just make sure that whatever you do, you give it a couple of circulations to level off. Yeah. Um, and typically, if you have to throw in a whole pallet or a tote of something, um, that could be a problem. <laughs> right. Good deal. Well, I don't have any other questions, Matt. You got any closing last words before we wrap this thing up? No, I mean, I, I hope this clears the air. Uh, I really appreciate the question because it, it actually made me go back and look at a few things. I think 
I sort of just take for granted that these are what they are and they do what they do. Yeah. Um, but going through just some of the history and the process of application was was beneficial for me. Hopefully, y'all feel the same way. Perfect. Well, if you have any other questions, you can hit us up on LinkedIn or hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. And uh, everyone out there, have a safe day. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.